This is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion. My name is Brando. Episode 48. Holy shitballs. 48. Pardon my French. Although Mitch Lafon is not a French-Canadian, I don't think. My special co-host, Mitch Lafon, today. You're not a French-Canadian, right? I am not. I mean, I, my, I have a, a French name, and, and my dad was born in France, but they got divorced way before I got to know what kindergarten was. So I was raised by an Anglophone English mother. Ah, so okay. I am fully, fully English, and I even, I don't say Lafon, I say Lafon, oh. which is sort of the bastardized English version of, of the name. So I'll try but, not to be the, the American who's like, you know, mozzarella, tries to change it, Lafon. Mozzarella. So, yeah, yeah, it's like, there's no mozzarella. <laughs> or, 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 yeah. I love it. So Mitch Lafon, many of you know, is my co-host for today, uh, Westwood One, uh, you know, with, with Chris Jericho on his network. Stupid idiot! Yes, uh, Canadians, they, they stick together. I love how this is going to be, I'd love to interview him at one point, but this is like the second uh, Jericho connection here on the show. You just made the list! Because a couple episodes ago, we interviewed Todd Kearns, and they had a Canadian cover band. Brilliant. The Canadian band that, that Todd is in with Brent Fitz is called Toke, or Tuke, or, right? It used to be Coverboy, yes, but it used to be it's Toke now. Or, yeah, well, listen, the French word that means, you know, a, a hat on your head there is T-U-Q-U-E. So when I see T-O, I call it Toke, and that, that's what it is for me. <laughs> but, yeah, I saw them live about uh, a month ago, six weeks ago. They were phenomenal. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. And they do all these Canadian hits from Honeymoon Suite to Rush to Trooper to, you know, all kinds of bands that your fans are listening to going, who, who now? Honey, uh, honey, honey, what? Yeah, all these famous Canadian bands. And no, I learned a lot from Todd Kearns, but that was a couple episodes ago. And of course, I want to, you know, mention as and since Mitch, you are a co-host today, you will be officially a part of News. So part of that is to thank whoever was on the last episode and that whoever was Tomislav from Croatia, our second fan interview that we did. Uh, and I don't know if uh, you got a chance to listen, Mitch. I don't expect you to because uh, who, who listens to me? That's well, yeah, well, I mean, he was talking about driving around right. of a war-torn country while listening to Appetite for Destruction. And it, it would occur to me that if you're driving through a war-torn country, you would probably want to have an appetite for non-destruction. Right? Yeah, so his his story is crazy, uh, and we got your story um, a few episodes ago. Uh, so I want to, you know, of course, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to Alan Niven, get his story. So it's all about the stories surrounding uh, Guns N' Roses, of course. And I also want to thank uh, a fan that gave me... I put it out there. I didn't know, I didn't know what to call, like, to call the fan interviews, you know, the, the fan profiles. Uh, so I'm like, you know, with my stupid names like Shotgun News, can I do something like that? So uh, suggested, this is from, I'll give him credit, I will, like just like I will give you credit right now. This interview with Mitch La, with Alan Niven is all through Mitch LaFon, so thank you. Merci, thank you. I know I'm being an asshole. Uh, yes. So this was uh, another fan that sent in this uh, suggestion for when we do another fan interview. Uh, this is from a, a quote, uh, a 38-year-old Korean dude working in insurance so he's like, call it bad obsession. I'm like, hmm, how can I make that? How can I Brando that? Fan. You heard that, right? 
I did. <laughs> <laughs> so if we when, we when we interview fans, we'll have a fan obsession. Uh, more about um, you know that's that'll those shows will be all about you, um, Mitch. I want to get we. Will, I By know, the way, a show all about me sounds wonderful. I know, and there's more about you that we we don't know yet, and because you were telling us. Uh, me, GNR stories we didn't get to cover, and since we last spoke, you had moved on against the Jer- Jericho Network and 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 um, Westwood One and a hey, Mazel Tov because what you've done with your podcast just gives me hope for my little podcast. Uh, so I'm I'm very grateful and, and thankful to you for setting me up with this interview with Alan Niven and of course uh, co-hosting it with me, which you are always welcome to do. Of course, uh, absolutely anytime. I love I love I love chat and music that's that's my number one thing you want to talk music anytime anywhere i'm here so thank you again for alan and we're going to actually ask him your questions i'm not saying that to mitch i'm saying that i'm pointing to no one right now but i'm pointing to the listeners in my mind the we're going to ask alan your fan submitted questions but we actually got a few questions for mitch before we talk to alan this will be part of shotgun news so maybe some breaking news here we don't know uh, this is from, and you responded to it. This is from um, a Guns N' Roses uh, fan site on, on Twitter. GNR Pseudo America. So I guess it's their South America um, fan site. Uh, yep. And he, he, the guy wrote, weeks before the reunion announcement, uh, Mitch said that Dave Kushner was going to be in the band. Why? Just fake news to gain followers, or was it a real option? Keep in mind before you answer, I interviewed Dave Kushner. Thank, uh, very grateful for that. He made no mention of that, uh, and he seemed like he wished he was a part of the reunion. So, Mitch, fake news or not? Uh, n- not fake news. <laughs> of course and, not. <laughs> and, and, and no, but let me explain. You, you know, when the wheels start moving on reunions or on farewell tours or on a new album or any kind of rock news, there's a million parts that, that come into play, and the... the the news that comes in or the, or the rumors you hear or the, the, the things that you hear are very fluid, and some of them are very true at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then as things develop, they change. And so when I heard uh, that Dave was going to be invited, it was from a uh, very trusted source. It wasn't the Internet or Wikipedia or some nonsense. And so – there was a suggestion that he was going to be invited. And, and you know, sometimes, and, and I'll give you an example, a very concrete example. 2014, Def Leppard went on tour with uh, Kiss, and it was announced that Night Ranger was going to be on the bill. And Night Ranger was on the bill. If you spoke to anybody in management, they were on the bill. They were part of the same management team as Kiss at the time. And what happened is... The money wasn't there, and the band decided, you know what, instead of opening for this tour and losing money, we're going to go play the summer festivals and the backyard barbecues and all that as headliners. Sure, we're not going to be playing in front of 25,000 people every night, but financially, it's going to make more sense. So you could go back and say, well, whoever said that Night Ranger was opening for Kiss, it's fake news, but it's not. And that's what happens all the time. So I don't know what happened with with Kushner. Maybe his name came up in a conversation during a meeting, and whoever let you know told me heard that and said, "Hey, by the way, who knows what what the moving parts are?" Um, 
but it certainly wasn't deliberately misleading. It certainly wasn't deliberately fake uh, because there's no advantage for me to do that. Here's the thing. When you do this, the rock journalism thing or any journal, it's all about credibility. And if nine times out of 10, the stuff I post is false, misleading, Mm -hmm. purposefully misleading, or just a blatant lie, at some point, people would just go, why am I following this guy? He's he's a, you know? Right. So I'm very careful about that. And yeah, once in a while, like the Night Ranger in 2014, things change. And it doesn't change because it's a lie. It changes because there are realities in the business. There's contracts. Sometimes contracts don't work. Now, as far as the as far as the Dave thing goes, I don't know what happened, why it didn't work out, but I do know that a trusted source mentioned it to me and it made sense. And if the trusted source had some misinformation or if the trusted but none of it was a deliberate attempt to mislead anybody because it really and when the when your questioner on Twitter said, is it just to get followers? No, it, it actually has an adverse effect if, if it turns out to be untrue because Absolutely. people go, I Absolutely. can't trust him. And so so I wouldn't purposefully try to harm my credibility. It makes no sense. And so, no, it wasn't fake news. It was what was the hot news at the time. It, it made sense. And if you go back in my Twitter history, uh, I tweeted that out with Dave Kirshner tagged on it look back and, and and see his answer so hmm. you'll see all right i'll, I'll, I'll have yeah. to look into that interesting so yeah, I, 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 because it was he didn't say no mitch you're lying go go look at his answer and 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 look at the wink that that it that it's hmm. sort of yeah. yeah just like how i don't think uh when i asked him about that he would have lied to me i understand certain things you can't talk about and i i tell everybody i interviewed that including i i spoke i uh, said that to alan so if I'm, I don't like to twist words or anything like that, so and that's also part of the uh, GNR uh, shotgun news. Why do I always get that that name right? I mean, I made a stupid soundbite for it. News. And in another recent uh, Bumblefoot interview uh, that he just gets frustrated when people take his words out of con- uh, context. And you know, I want to get him on the show at some point. I mean, he was technically my first interview ever uh, back in in Cape Cod, and so I mean, I can understand. People are a little, especially in today's American climate with the fake news and people are just jumped to conclusions. But I never even thought for, for me personally a, a second that Mitch would be, put anything out there that didn't have any sort of validity to it. And life changes. Shit just happens. So yeah, it really far- does. And, and by the way, I, I spoke to, to Bumblefoot last year. I've, I've done two interviews since then with him, but I, I spoke to him last year and we got into this long discussion about uh, why – Let's why we're why we're not talking about Guns N' Roses, why we're not going to talk. And he said, listen, I've got this album. And I think at the time it was Sons of Apollo. And it's like, blah, blah, blah. We'll do all this stuff. And then the only thing you will be you'll see on the news is uh, Bumblefoot said Axel this. And so he said that was frustrating. And it's funny because we did the entire interview skirting around the Guns N' Roses topic. We went in the interview talking about how there are clickbait sites and out of all the interviews I've done with Bumblefoot, guess which one didn't get picked up by those sites? Yeah. The one where we didn't talk about GNR and he, we, we both uh, were, were giving our opinions about clickbait and, and clickbait titles and stuff or, or um, headlines, I guess is the word for it. And so, um, yeah, you know, he, it's, yeah. <laughs> I get it. 
And that's and I, I've we've spoken about it before. Um, why? I mean, he was really nice about it not coming on because of because it's a Guns N' Roses uh, site, and I understand wanting to move on, and that's why with Alan, I'm going to focus on not just GNR stuff, but his life and everything. Um, but I get it, and I would focus on other things. Uh, it really is fascinating. And I'm, right now, I'm trying to... Let me see if I can get it. I found my an, a, original um, interview with Bumble from when I was a kid. Uh, a kid. I was probably in the like, early 20s. You probably laugh at that uh, that phrase. So I'll have to find it and play it. Um, but I did get another question for you before we get into Alan and start asking him uh, uh, all these these fun questions. Um, I want to know... This is from my... Oh, excuse me. This is from Georgina UK from my GNR forum. And this could be, I don't know, it's not going to be fake news. This is just what, if you know it. Do you know anything, right. if you've heard about Concrete Axel DC, there's a realistic expectation of a new GNR album? So two questions, I guess, within that same one. So, okay. So have I heard anything official about, about a Guns N' Roses album? The answer is no. Have I heard people within the spider web uh, talking about that? I have, uh, but none of them are based on anything concrete. They they just sort of, there, there's a lot of, a friend of a friend said that a friend of a friend saw that a friend of a friend heard. So, so, you know, is it where there's smoke, there's fire, or is it just blah, blah, blah? My personal feeling, based on absolutely just knowing the business that, when, you know, you do a tour, you know, when Kiss did the reunion tour back in 96, the next logical step would be to have, new product and a new t-shirt or new running shoes is not the right product a new album is so i would think that the next logical step would be a new guns and roses album now as for axel dc or acdc uh i'm trying to think if i if i was told or if i read it somewhere that angus was very very happy with axel and the band and that he wanted to move forward with making an album so so my own personal feelings is, yeah, I expect that there will be new product from both ACDC featuring Axel and, of course, Guns N' Roses featuring Slash, Slash Duff and Axel. It, it, it just is sequentially the logical next step for both entities. And I kind of feel the same way. It is fascinating. I'm going to see if this uh, this works right now. I'm going to see if I can play you uh, the Bumblefoot thing. The better of us know him as oh, Bumblefoot. All right, so, you know, let me start again. So this is a uh, 20-year-old Brando. To, uh, my very first radio interview uh, with Bumble. I met him at a show in Ottawa. There's your your connection, your Canadian connection. Uh, kept up with him via MySpace. I told the story about this in previous podcasts, but I, I hadn't played the actual audio. I wish I had the full interview, but this is just what I put on my uh, my radio reel. So enjoy Little Brando. This is before a Chinese came out talking to Bumblefoot. Some of you know him as Ron Tall. The better of us know him as Bumblefoot, one of the guitarists from Guns N' Roses. How are you doing today? Very good, man. How are you doing? I have to ask the question. About the album? Yes, about How the um, Chinese democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I wouldn't be doing cool. my job. I know all the DMS are sick of hearing the word soon. Yeah. But but you guys haven't heard that the album is done recorded. All right, excellent. There you have it. It is going to come out. Once again, soon is the word. From what I've heard from the leaks and from what I've heard live, it's going to be well worth the wait. And Bumblefoot, I can't thank you enough for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. And uh, if you want to throw in some uh, free backstage passes to me, I won't turn them away. <laughs> Very cool. 
horribly edited and so long ago. So uh, hopefully he comes on again. But did you get point. the backstage passes? That's no, the important no, thing. of course not. No, I'm not. I'm not Mitch Lafon. So there you go. So I, I hope to have one day uh, Bumblefoot on the show, and I will. I'll ask him about everything other than GNR if he wants. I, I, I've made that offer to other. Uh, guests who were a little timid. I mean, I'm glad Brain eventually came on, but I say, hey, if you just want to talk about your life growing up, I think GNR fans will still care about that. They care about you. So the invitation is always there to Bumblefoot, but forever. He he popped my uh, interview, Cherry. Yes, and, and I will be seeing him in April in, uh, in Montreal. We spoke about it, and, and I've offered to be his tour guide and uh, lunch companion to uh to, to take him around town so that that's supposed to happen in april when they're here with uh the new band the new new band i've heard nothing but good things i haven't seen uh them them live yet sons of apollo but yeah. uh it'll be it'll be interesting and and maybe you know uh, you want to co-host an episode or i'm sure you'll have them on uh rock talk with mitchell lafon first but if there's ever a right time maybe he'll feel better about uh, if I Mitch Lafon was co-hosting an episode of the AFD show, who knows? But uh, that is potentially then. Uh, this is now. I have to give credit always where credit is due. Uh, you know, I'm very lucky to have gotten some of the guests that I've had on this show. Uh, but you know, with someone like Mitch, who really has worked from the ground up and and to go from you know just doing YouTube stuff to eventually working with Chris Jericho. Stupid idiot. It just says a lot. So thank you, Mitch, for um, connecting me with Alan Niven uh, and, and being my co-host on this episode. It means yeah. a lot. Um, and I want to you're always you're, of course, you're always welcome whenever you want to co-host. After you after you, you, you wrung out the good stuff on Rock Talk, if there's any leftover stuff if you want to put on the AFD show, uh, feel, <laughs> feel free to, uh, yeah. to to come on because I know you have a lot more GNR stories. And I've got quite a few. I, I, I mean, you know, there was there was that time in, in I guess, 2008, 2009, Guns N' Roses came to to play Quebec City. And I was hanging around backstage and, um, you know, Bumblefoot and all those guys walked in and said hello to everybody. And then the, the captain of this police squad came in and said, uh, no, no, no questions. Look away. Uh, turn your eyes down. And I was like, what the fuck? And, and then somebody said, oh, Axel's walking in. And so everybody had to look away and stuff. And I'm like... Come on! This is not Axel who's asked this. This this is just some dude who's who's thinking he's you know, and it was just strange to to just see sort of reporters and everybody sort of staring at their feet while Axel walked in, and it was just like, really? Like, and and I know that that's not from Axel. I know that that's just somebody at the venue who just wanted to make some kind of show or some kind of I'm the boss here. It was weird, and of course I was at the Olympic Stadium. Uh, riots back in was that August of ninety two ninety one ninety two I was there that was a fun night and and yeah I got plenty of great stories to tell from the from the GNR stuff lot of great stuff lot of great stuff uh, so that's why you're going to be a reoccurring character you're going to be uh, I don't know maybe Baba Booey that'll <laughs> be fun I, I want to give you more credit like oh, who's a who's a good re- you're going to be Tom Selleck on Friends that's you there you go. There you go. He's going to have to grow a mustache. Uh, but in the meantime, because we know about Mitch, uh, we're going to get to know Alan. So I believe he is calling up right now. So uh, enough of my uh, fluffing Mitch LaFon's ego. Time to uh, let's talk to Alan Niven. So as uh, Mitch and I were 
talking about, obviously, and why you're tuning into this episode. Uh, joining us on the phone right now, Alan Niven. Uh, you may know the name. You do know the name if you're, of course, a Guns N' Roses fan, was uh, their manager for a crucial part of their history. Uh, has done so much else, you know, of course, with uh, with Great White and uh, worked with so many different bands. So I want to find out more about Alan. First of all, hello. Or do I say, first of all, is it offensive if I call you a Kiwi? Please, I'm an ignorant American. I don't know. Is that is that offensive term, Kiwi? No, it's definitely not offensive to call a New Zealander a Kiwi. Okay. Um, some New Zealanders might get upset if you call them Aussies. Okay. All right. Because I, well, full disclosure, and nobody gives a shit about me, but there was this Australian girl that I was uh, hitting on and trying to be like a jerk about it. I kept calling her a Kiwi. It did not work at all. Uh, so I want to know uh, more about Alan and how we got there. Uh, first of all, A, thank you so much for, for joining us and taking the time. Pleasure. There's uh, not a hockey game until uh, 7.55 my time. Yes, uh, we have to establish, because obviously, uh, Mitch, you're... You're home in Canada, or you have your Justin Trudeau uh, comforter on right now, hanging out in Montreal. That's where you're hanging out? Uh, 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 first of all, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I am not a Justin Trudeau fan, and, and quite frankly, uh, he could go be your president for oh, all, for all I, I care. But no, I, Me yes, and a million I Americans would love that. Anyway, continue. <laughs> oh, no, you wouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> but I am, yes, in the, the home of the winningest uh, city of Stanley Cups, uh, Montreal. So uh, I think we have 24 of them that we can throw at you Rangers fans and, and Islanders fans. Yeah, don't ever say you Rangers fans to me, ever. Because like, I'm, I'm an Islander fan, and that's what really piqued my interest, because I've listened to, of course, uh, Alan's, um, Alan's interviews with Mitch, and just in addition to just being intrigued by the GNR stuff, the hockey stuff, and I've talked about it because I'm a big Islanders fan, and uh, for some reason, I don't know why I'm wearing a Tampa Bay Lightning hat right now. I've had this hat for like 20 years. Uh, but so, I know, Alan, you're not calling from New Zealand. You're calling from Arizona, where you reside, correct? Yeah, I live in, I live in uh, Mountain, Arizona, about an hour and a half north of Phoenix, um, at about 5,000 feet. So it's not as hot as Phoenix in the summer. And we get seasons up here. We get a bit of snow. But I just want to quickly point out something before it slips away. Sure. Um, the, while Mr. Lafon is crowing about um, how many times um, his local team have won the, <laughs> won the Stanley Cup, most of the time when they won it, I think there were, what, four or five other teams? And, that was <laughs> it. And, it was, and it was basically, a, you know, your turn now round robin. Um, <laughs> Now we're in a competitive era. They're a little less guaranteed, um, you know. The and, and of course the Islanders had a had a splendid run there too. Um, yes, I don't I remember was, the last time because I was born in 1983. I don't remember well, any good times. Well, we know why you were born. Um, oh, but, but that, the thing I do find <laughs> well, the <laughs> thing I the thing I do find interesting was that um, obviously. In, over the years, I've been into Nassau Coliseum a number of times, and what a shit pit of an environment that was. But I would say it was the most perfect hockey arena. The Coliseum, the Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, it leaked, it stank, it was rusted, it was horrible. But I can't imagine a more perfect setting for an ice hockey game. Exactly. The barn. I know they redid it. The Islanders are going to play uh, some games there next year. I know no one gives a shit about this. I never got—I don't think Guns N' Roses ever played the Coliseum. You know, I, I've seen uh, 
Lincoln Park uh, there. I've seen Ozzy uh, there. I saw Cypress Hill there. I don't know if Gene ever played. I was, I, I was there with Great White and Judas Priest in '84, I think. Okay. But but these um, but these wonderful new arenas that they build today, where you have uh, you know champagne served to over over upholstered leather leather seats. Uh, just, you know, not quite hockey. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like, you go to, I feel like you're going to a hotel or, and there just happens to be a hockey game at some of these arenas. I haven't been to, uh, so are you now a Coyotes fan? Well, I grew up in them being the Phoenix Coyotes, but now they're the Arizona Coyotes. Well, there's, there's, there's an obligation to connect to your local team. And interestingly enough, I moved to the desert permanently. Um, I'd had property out here for a while, but I moved my family here permanently at the same time as the uh, Coyotes were launched, which I felt was um, a sign from the universe and from God that I was making the right decision. And <laughs> you get, you're going to have to give up on the LA Kings now, but here's your new team. Um, so yes, that's that's our local team. Uh, we did have. Um, a minor league team actually here in town called the Sundogs. I thought you had the Roadrunners, or is that something else? Well, the Roadrunners used to be based in Phoenix, and then they disappeared, and now they're back in Tucson, and they're oh, okay. actually having a good year. Um, they're actually having a good year, but uh, we actually had a, a team in Prescott Valley called the Sundogs, and uh, that was a lot of fun, but it went the way of m- most things um, in this area. It an initial interest and then it kind of fades away and then it fails financially. Um, so we lost the Sundogs, which is a shame. Mm. Well, I, I hope the, yeah. that sucks because until now with the island, and again, nobody gives a shit. I just love the fact that I'm talking about uh, hockey with the, an ex-Guns Roses manager and, of course, and a Canadian. It's <laughs> one of the, I love it. That's the way this, to do it. Yeah, the one the, the Montreal Forum was the place to see hockey. I mean, there's no denying that that had the the, the everything, the ghosts, the attitude. That's that's the real. Yeah, part. but uh, the, the the other thing that I need to point out to Mitch is that the Habs are not going to win another cup until the curse of the blade is lifted. And of course, I'm talking about the fact that they pulled that stunt when they were playing the LA Kings way back when, which was actually the very first game that I took my son to, hockey game, um, when we got screwed over uh, Marty Sawley's blade. Mm. And uh, I have, um, I found a, a photograph on online of the officials measuring the blade and Every time the Habs either do not make the playoffs or fail in the playoffs, I make sure I send that picture to Mitch. <laughs> the, the relationship you guys have is funny. Yeah, and, and of course, there will not be a Stanley Cup in Montreal in, in my remaining lifetime. I, I, can, I can sadly admit to that. It's, it's, it's bad. I've, I, I've heard a rumor out of the Lafon household that there's a line of overnight bags by the front door with Las Vegas <laughs> labels on them. Um, I think Mitch is starting to get to the point of thinking that maybe he should move out of the snow and move into the desert. Because, you know, who knows? We may even have a Stanley Cup in the desert this year. That would be crazy. Yep. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I, I follow uh, Mitch Lafon uh, on, I have to say it, Frenchie, uh, on Twitter, I constantly see you like the Las Vegas Golden Knights tweets all the time. 
And they have a funny. <laughs> Actually, uh, my youngest brother just came from Vegas for school, believe it or not. Uh, and I asked him to buy me a, a Knights uh, shirt. So, no, again, nobody gives a shit. But I love but this. Maybe, Alan, in the future, we can have like a sports segment with Alan and Mitch. You know. Do it for WOR. No, but, but, but to be fair, I've always been a fan of underdogs and new teams. I mean, I had bought Minnesota Timberwolves shirts. I had bought Jacksonville Jaguar shirts when they came in. I have a whole closet full of uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. I bought my Vegas stuff last year when they first went on sale before the team had a lineup before. And who, who expect, I mean, I was, I expected to be wearing, you know, the loser shirt for the entire season who knew they'd be the number one team. So I jumped on a bandwagon before the bandwagon got rolling. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's actually kind of funny that I expected to be rooting for the number 30 team. Go, go, go. And they're leading the league. I mean, wow. Yes. The underdog. That's I think that's the transition uh, that I want to make from our. I I should come up with a sounder sports segment with Alan Niven. No, I got to work on my everything. Well, actually, Brandon, you got a very good segue there when you hit on the word underdog, um, because I think perhaps the three of us might agree that rock and roll at its best is the voice of the underdog, the voice of the disenfranchised. Um, an underdog means of speaking power to truth, and it was certainly part of my initial appeal uh, with GNR was they were a bunch of junkyard dogs with the right attitude. Yeah, and actually, that the, you you picked up on it. Actually, the uh, sometimes I shoehorn my transitions in there like too much to to try to force it. But no, you picked up on it, and uh, that actually leads me to because I had re-listened to your interview with with Mitch, and you said a lot of interesting things about GNR and again the underdog and maybe where they are now and when where they were when you were managing them. So I want to we will get there and uh, fan questions from literally uh, around the world. Uh, for you, uh, but I will mention one fan specifically that I know will appreciate uh, all the hockey talk. One of my friends who listens to every episode, I don't ask him to. I've actually told him to stop listening because I, I feel like he's just doing it on purpose, but he actually likes it. Uh, my friend John, he lives in D.C., huge hockey fan, went to college with him. Uh, he would laugh at everything you said about the NASA Coliseum, So, and obviously also a huge GNR fan. So, But we'll get into more fan uh, interaction later on with you. But you're the underdog I want to talk about now. So I want to know how you got from, you went from New Zealand, which I, you know, I'm a dumb American. I don't know anything outside America. We don't learn social studies. Uh, I say the flippantly, sort of. Uh, you're going from New Zealand, you no, know, to, to Guns N' Roses, to LA, and now to Arizona, you know, wearing your Nikolai Hobby Bullen jersey. So I want to know how we got there. So take us back to uh, Little Allen. Well, let's do it really fast because, you know, it's, not necessarily the most riveting of tales. No, I, I want to see. I, 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 I may disagree. I, every even before you you continue, I want to know how, like, what kind of music you grew up with. I want to know what it's like being uh, growing up in New Zealand and in that person that that the well, kid Alan eventually rubbing elbows and working with Axel and Slash and doing all that. So, well, the, well, f- first of all, I didn't grow up in New Zealand. My parents moved from there when I was four years old. Moved to England. Oh, well, I'm an idiot. But, so I was raised in England and um, went to English boarding schools, uh, which will explain my 
deep and profound anti-authoritarianism. Um, the first significant job I had was driving a van for a young company called Virgin Records. And um, I was with them for f five years. Within about six months of being at Virgin, um, they started to send me abroad. They'd send me to Sweden and Norway, um, Germany, Switzerland. And uh, eventually one day I would, went in for my... Uh, end-of-year evaluation was told that they were going to send me to America um, the, the following week. So that was that was, a, that was a major shift in my life in that I started coming to America regularly and I started to understand um, the American infrastructure better than I knew the English infrastructure. Um, and after I parted ways of Virgin, I, I retired from... <laughs> In my mid-twenties, I retired. Um, I'm not even sure I was really working anyway. But um, I decided that I didn't want my passion to be my occupation. I went and lived in Sweden for two years. And while I was there, somebody came out from L.A. and offered me a job. And it was one of those moments, Brandon, in life where... And excuse me if uh, I'm about to drop an, um, an F-bomb and you've got to clean it out. Oh, no, you can curse. Uh, all right, because, you know, they, they tend to Fuck shit, uh, asshole, you know, all that, whatever, whatever. Whatever makes Alan Niven happy, I don't care. Well, just don't, don't, don't drop N-bombs. That would just be awkward. <laughs> I, would, I had that moment of realization that I was basically fucked. Mm. Because if I, if I didn't go and take this job in L.A., I knew that I'd spend the rest of my life wondering, I wonder what would have happened if you'd gone. And I knew I had to go and find out what was going to happen. So I moved to L.A. and uh, worked for a company there for a while. Um, uh, it was called Green World. Um, out of that, uh, with the partners who owned um, Green World, uh, we uh, decided to launch a label. Um, I'd signed a band that had come through the door that no one else would go near or touch uh, to our tiny little distribution net um, company. Uh, it was a band called Motley Crue. And uh, obviously we got somewhere with that. And out of that, we decided to launch a label, which I called Enigma. Um, my first signing for Enigma was actually a band called Berlin. Um, but Yeah, I know Berlin. And from that, um, I still found my partners were not necessarily easy people to work with. So when another band came along and said, we want you to manage us, um, I said, you know, I think you're going to be more entertaining company than the people I'm with. So I stepped off and did management, despite the fact that, as I pointed out to the band, I knew nothing about it whatsoever. Um, and their response was, you'll learn. <laughs> And obviously, had I known anything about management, I'd have probably gone back to being an accountant or something. <laughs> Interesting. There you go. That was that's as quickly as I can get you from New Zealand to L.A. I mean, that's cool that you had no idea what management was and were able to do what you did. But do you have any idea when you're like, OK, I want to go to L.A., I want to go to visit the States, like what you want to do, where they would lead to like, lead you? Or just the fact that this was the place where something may happen? 
there was no grand scheme. Um, right, that's what I'm asking. Like, if there's, if you had any sort of agenda, the the agenda was that I was in, I was enjoying my life in Sweden. It's the most rational and caring place that I've lived. Uh, in America, you're not allowed to use the word socialism, um, and and being able to speak the English language. I find it entertaining that socialism is a dirty word because I think the opposite, anti-social, is an even dirtier word. And Sweden was a, a very fine place to live. Uh, the liquor prices were outrageous, but the people were beautiful. And uh, We spoke to Ryan Roxy. He called us from Sweden, actually. Yeah, um, but uh, it, it, it was a rational place to live. And Los Angeles is not a rational place to live. I'd visited Los Angeles enough to know that it was a dangerous and maybe ill-advised move to make, to move into that kind of environment. And in the months before I moved, I had this big notice board up in my kitchen in Sweden where I'd cut out newspaper clippings of every absurd piece of social behavior that they reported on, put it on, on the notice board, and I'd stand there with my coffee in the morning and go, really? You really want to go and live in this environment? Um, there was no particular scheme except that I wanted to get back to being involved with uh, the creation and distribution of music again. Um, I definitely had not planned to be involved with management. Um, I might have had a half-assed notion, but I doubt it was serious that maybe I might get involved on a creative level um, with putting music together. Um, but it was a moment when a huge door opened. And one of the things I learned at Virgin was one of the most critical words that you can have in your vocabulary is yes. And at Virgin, um, promotion was from within. And my boss, Chris Diliano or Branson would ask me to do something. And my immediate response would be, sure, no problem. Then I'd walk out of the office and go, what the fuck have I got myself? <laughs> and how the fuck am I going to deal with this? Yeah. But, you learned, but you learned as you went and that made it exciting. My days at Virgin were exciting days. They were interesting. And it came from the power of the word yes, and I believe fundamentally in that, that when a, a significant door opens, just say yes and step through it. And figure it out from there. Is that something that, that perhaps maybe yep. you're, you're, was it instilled in you from perhaps your parents growing up, or is that something you just learned just growing up uh, like the rest of us do? I, I think the confidence to do it, um, was instilled in the very broad vein of arrogance that runs through the boarding school system and uh, what were the upper middle classes of England, um, that sense of can-do. Um, and you've you, you got to bear in mind that uh, people like Richard Branson and uh, Chris Stiliano were public school boys too at, at Virgin, and there was a very strong sense of a swaggering piracy in some respects, um, which was almost beyond the power of the word yes. But 
very much that was the environment in which that was reinforced in me of take it on, see what you can do. You won't know until you try. And that's the perfect attitude that you need to have when you're dealing with bands like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and Great White because it, it's not like you, there is no rule book on how to handle, A, just be a manager in general, but for bands like that, I mean, I your attitude, is, I mean, I know in the end you didn't survive to an extent, uh, but you have to have the attitude just to tread water. Am I wrong in thinking that? Well, yes and no. The other thing is um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember terms like this. Um, the cat's pajamas? I, no, I, uh. I'm, I, I'm old enough to, uh, to actually have been almost a part of um, a thing called hippies. Uh, <laughs> Come on. I wasn't born in the 60s, but I know how you're funny. Okay. It, it, and I like to think that part of what made me of some little use to uh, various bands at a certain point was that I didn't approach it with a suit on. I wasn't buttoned down. It wasn't nine to five to me. The occupation, the passion, was a way of life. And I still viewed rock and roll as a way of life. I mean, you know, the uh, the rational amongst us would say, yes, rock and roll is a way of life. It's God's occupation for the unemployable. Um, I mean, that, to me, that's such an outdated thought, you know, at this point, especially since every other, I mean, we can get deeper in, if it comes up organically with other genres. I feel like other genres like uh, hip hop and country are stealing from rock in that culture. So rock is for everybody. I don't know why it's still in 2018 being demonized. Then if you were attracted to to rock and that attitude, you have that confidence, what did you listen to growing whether it growing up in the UK? Everything. Was it everything? Everything? Like what's everything? Give me give me some names. Uh well, we could go to Miles Davis, Chet Baker, we can go to Toots and the Maytals, nice. we can go to Third World. Uh, we can go to Genesis, Mitch. Uh, yes. We can go to Frank Zappa. We can, you know, literally... Uh, Foreigner. Summary, Foreigner. Foreigner. I mean, literally everything. And England lent itself to that because England is a small, a small island. You can get from one end to the, to the other of it in a day. And it compares with America in this way. America is a, a monstrous continent. So the philosophy that drove the music industry in America was we had to get everybody to buy one record. That was the most efficient way of marketing and profiting on the generation of music is to get everybody to buy one record. Whereas in England, where you had a small island and a small market, the idea was to get one person to buy every record. So there was an encouragement of eclecticism in England that we, we've never really deeply had in America. So you'd have Melody Maker and Sounds and NME, for example. And I first found out about Bob Marley by reading a very small article in Melody Maker. So I went into my local store and said... I want this record. Can you order it for me? And, you know, there's my first Bob Marley record. Um, it was through curiosity and 
in those days too there was a sense of uh, a different sense of standard um there was a greater weight of soul and intelligence in what was being generated i mean 1964 to 1974 to me is the golden age of popular music. It's but, it's hard to argue uh, that. I mean, it, and just so you know that I can roll with the big boys who are older than me. I was watching the Dick Cavett show the other day, and Miles Davis was a guest. So wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, and of course. Alan went through his kiss phase, putting on the makeup, right, Alan? I mean, that, that that's my favorite phase of yours. Don't you well, hate kiss? Uh, I thought you like, do you guys have a kiss thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, poor Mitch. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd think he'd have grown out of it by now. I remember vividly the very first time I saw a, a kiss cover on their first album. And I raised an eyebrow and I thought, this looks interesting. There's guys in suits with kabuki makeup on. And... And immediately I thought, hmm, somebody's probably taking a, uh, a leaf out of the Alice Cooper page. Let's see how well they did it. And then I played the record, and that was pretty much the last time I played a, a Kiss record. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, forgive me, guys, but I will say that probably the most overrated American band of all time. Um, just run by a brilliant marketing guy. But in terms of did it satisfy my soul or my intelligence? No, and they weren't very good at satisfying my venal inclinations because their their groove and lock was dreadful. You know, my my former co-host uh, Scotto loves Kiss, and I've always been kind of neutral, like the handful of songs. Cause, you know, growing up in working in radio, I don't say growing up in radio, working in radio, the handful of songs that, that Kiss has that are always played. I'm like, all right, fine. Uh, but just like I, I kind of tend to side more with you, Alan, on this. It's just over the years, and I've talked, I've spoken about it. We talk about all bands on this show. It's just, of course, stemming from GNR. Uh, that Gene Simmons, he's just turned me off completely with things that his his behavior, things that he said, especially regarding mental health. And it's just really hard for me to, to. I mean, I I, I saw them once uh, in two thousand two, so that's not like a you know prime Kiss years. But I was bored, and that's just me. And plus, uh, Gene blocked me on Twitter because I said his hair looks like Lego hair. Uh, but that's another story. I mean, I, I hope to, you know, maybe one day. I, I don't like saying things too negative to someone. I don't know them completely, and I've always been like that with Axel. That was usually my number one defense of Axel when he was before he seemed to have redeemed himself or seems to be a, a, on good behavior and smiling. You know, Axel's a dick. I'm like, I don't know him. I don't know. I never met the man. So I kind of, even though Gene Simmons has pissed me off in the in the, in the media, I try to be like that. Plus, I also want Brett Fitz on the show, and he's his drummer. So <laughs> I don't want to completely. Brett is fantastic, by the way, but, and Canadian. And and just quickly on Axel, I will say that whatever happened from eighty to two thousand five, what it's over. The last two years on tour, on time, the vo- he, ACD. He's just been absolutely on point, and, and just good for him. I mean, just really good for him. I, you know, uh, I applaud. The axle of the last two, three years is fantastic. Just absolutely fantastic. It's been shocking, and I want to get Alan's. I know you've spoken about it a little on, on, with with Mitch, but uh, not on the AFD show yet. I want to get to your thoughts on the current state, but I still want to focus on you and uh, how you got to where you are well, now. Let, let, let's not completely dispense with uh, Kiss just yet. Okay, no, it's, this is your show. Go ahead. Right. I mean, because they are they are the greatest American rock band. Nirvana, of course, being the most embarrassing. Nirvana. Rock band. But yes. Wait. Oh, go so, ahead. Wait. So wait. 
So Alan, yep. that's that's a lot to handle. So Alan, I, I'm more towards Alan that I believe Kiss is overrated, and if it wasn't for the gimmick, they wouldn't be as popular as they are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, but I, I get the impression that Gene is one of those people who you'd be very tempted to dose with acid. At <laughs> You know, I, I think I think I think there's a part of his soul and in his intellect that is that is buttoned down and not released. And I rather think he would be a perfect candidate for a hit of acid. Jesus, <laughs> we here at the AFD show do not condone throwing acid on people, but in, in a cartoony sense, it's hilarious. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, I mean, say, say we're talking LSD here, not not so. Oh, I thought you meant throwing. Oh, well, wherever I'm thinking, like throwing acid in his face, like that. Oh, oh no, no, no. Well, that's no, no, even funnier. No, no, no. Yeah, maybe he. Well, maybe he needs to go on a trip. Fair enough. Mm. Yeah. No. Anyway. He, he, need, he, needs, he may need a splash of color and a bit of looseness in his consciousness at some point. Mm, I can see that coming out. And then he'll come out with, hit, like, the kiss will come out with, like, their Sergeant Peppers after that. And my yeah. thing is, uh, my silly, stupid uh, reference to kiss, I've always looked at them uh, as the crusty, the clown of rock. Hey, hey! And you love them. <laughs> but they sell out everything. Uh, but... At the end of the day, I think every one of us on this call would be happy to have their bank account. Oh, of course. To me, they've done something right. Yeah, I mean, I can't. He he seems to be happy with his life, I guess. So who, he doesn't give a shit what the fuck I say. So I know that. So that's why I don't try to go too deep into the bashing. It just, it just upset me, Alan, that when he says uh, things offhanded about mental health. In addition to talking about Guns N' Roses, you know, because everyone in GNR has had some issues, whether it be... With uh, addiction, like the stuff that Gene said after Prince, it's just, I don't like that. So that's something well, I talk about with Jones and Roses I, I, and relating mental health. So I, I'm I'm a little concerned at the moment um, because uh, here in America, with recent events, there are dogs right. going off right and left um, about mental health being the fundamental cause of people going off and shooting other people, and that in of itself is incontrovertible. You've got to be unbalanced to go and want to shoot somebody. But I, I, I kind of step back and look at the larger picture and say, well, it, talk to me about the social mental, mental health of this country that you feel you all need to have to have guns in the first place. Um, and in terms of mental health, I don't think most people know that Lincoln, the president, had two extreme bouts of depression and often talked about hanging himself off a tree in the the White House lawn. Did that make him any less significant in his contribution to his society or his contribution to history? Um, Not enough was understood about depression. Right. Um, Not not enough was understood about suicidal depression. You're absolutely right. and, I, and I'll tell you flat out, um, I've had my own bouts of extreme depression post-GNR, and I'm not letting much of a cat out of a bag when I look around and go, and guess what? Everybody in GNR suffered from depression at certain points. And, of course, most people will sit there and go, well, what the fuck up? I mean, you've got money in the bank, you've got chicks, man, you've got <laughs> Jack Daniels. You know, what can you get depressed about? Well, guess what? You get depressed about fundamental things that affect everybody. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Um, Self-worth issues. Um, Is this right? Is this wrong? Um, 
do I feel connected or do I feel alienated to the people around me? And there is no uh, college course for what we will call success. Um, I will say that an interesting way to look at success is to describe it as a figment of an envious mind. Um, most one thing you learn about uh, a, an influx of money, and especially a sudden influx of money, is that it may eradicate the problems that you're focused on at the moment, but it will present you with a completely new palette of problems to deal with, and not all of them are very pleasant. Um, so, yeah, mental health. Um, I think everybody connected to GNR has gone through a rough period at some point or another. Um, and I think that only speaks to the fact that, you know, we all have a humanity. So to make, com to make comments about mental health without empathy and without understanding is, at the very least, in poor taste. Yes, and, and, and dangerous, uh, I think, too, because yes. uh, I, I yes. know, Alan, we're first meeting for the first time, and, but I have spoken about it on, on the podcast uh, I, I did it at the end of my interview with Todd Kearns, but the, the primary time when I first really spoke about it on the air, uh, I mean, it's a podcast, but I mean, I've been on FM, but it was never an opportunity, but it was the interview I did with uh, Dave Kushner. And this was right after uh, Chris Cornell. And I, I lost my dad the same way, just so you know that, Alan. I, it was probably uh, a year before uh, Robin Williams. But I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry to hear that, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, but growing up and what led me and my attraction to GNR, before I really understood, like, depression, I just thought, oh, maybe I'm being emo, you know. I have to go to Hot Topic and then listen to my November rain, you know, or I know what it was. Uh, but as I got older and I've you know, gone to therapy, I've been on medication, things of, uh, of that nature, and understanding what mental health is, and it's not, it's all these, yes, the X factors, all the variables, whether you're, uh, the common man, or if you're Axl Rose, there's always problems that present themselves, but there's also chemical imbalances where you don't know. It's just like any body, any organ that's failing you, you know, that needs to be corrected as medication. So I've always looked at Axl in that regard where he can seem to be so calm and, and sweet and nice. And again, this is the older Axl and my vision or the way I saw it as just a fan on the outside uh, but then all of a sudden flip and just be very angry and lash out. And I, I identified with that when I was struggling with my depression. So that's what, you know, that was probably the first episode of the AFD show. Cause, uh, me and my then co-host spoke about why we love Guns N' Roses, how it, you know, to, to set the, <laughs> the table before uh, for this podcast to dedicate uh, to them. So that's why I found myself attracted to the GNR. So maybe this is the, the segue for you, unless you, you of course, okay. add whatever you need to uh, just to... <laughs> There, 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 are, there are interesting aspects here. First of all, you've got to consider that the only um, institution to which we're obliged in life that we do not join voluntarily is family. Yes. And family circumstance, family experience, family genes are the first piece of major baggage that we're obliged to learn how to carry through, you know, the airport of our existence. There's that. I don't know if you have any credence in things like astrology, 
I do. Um, I live with a remarkable woman uh, who is the best example and definition of my comprehension of being psychic that I've ever come across. Um, and she's a, a very adept reader of astrology. But if you do Axel's birth chart, you look at it, and even with my rudimentary knowledge, I look at it and go, oh, my God, I wish I'd seen this back in the day. How the hell does he get through life anyway? I mean, his chart is not one I'd wish on anybody. Uh, and then again, you know, an, another, another step is when we're talking about chemical imbalances, uh, I'd, I've been through the same process of being uh, prescribed chemicals. Um, and in one way or another, I was, uh, when I was much younger, I was a, uh, a little bit of an expert at chemicals. <laughs> sure. Um, but um, the other thing I've come to realize, too, is that we are very much exploited by big pharma. And sure. if you sneeze twice, there's a reason why you have to take their pill. And if you sneeze four times, there's a reason why you have to take their three pills. In other words, they shovel shit onto us when maybe that shit isn't appropriate or needed. Uh, maybe other things are needed. Maybe there's a more holistic way of improving your state of mind. Even simple things like exercise, uh, a major difference to me is a good relationship. If you're in a good relationship, that really helps with my state of mind. Sure. If I'm in a shitty relationship or if things around me are not fun or if I feel like I'm swimming in a goddamn shark tank, which was most of my time with GNR, I felt I was swimming in a shark tank. And I'm not referring just to the band. I'm referring to all the people around who all wanted something for some some reason. Mm. Um then that's, that, that puts, puts you ill at ease. Um, so again, you know, we have a, in America, we have an industry, Big Pharma, who make an awful lot of profit out of selling all kinds of shit to people because it's necessary. And I am very concerned about the fact that the NRA are talking about mental health, that the president is talking about mental health and so on and so uh, forth. Yeah. What, what, what are we looking at, Brandon? We're looking at neighbors peering over fences and going, oh, my God, she's wearing a, a bikini and jumping in the pool. She must be mentally nuts. You know, it's, you know where this is going to go. No, you're absolutely right. And I know, again, um, it's funny because it's not a political show, obviously, but we have dedicated. Uh, I mean, Trump, just you can't help but bring him up anyway. But especially since, like, Axel brought up the pinata and how vocal Dell James is. And so, I mean, politics still gets intertwined in our Guns N' Roses world. But you're absolutely right. Well, I wait, agree with wait, everything you're saying. Go ahead, Mitch. Wait, wait, wait one minute there, Brad. Oh, Alan. Yeah. At, at its very best, there is inherently a sense of politics in the best of rock and roll. Uh, to me... When Axel wrote Civil War, I got incredibly excited at that because I thought he was going to uh, develop from being um, a social politician to a social state statesman, that he was going to make statements that I found worthwhile and important for people to hear uh, through the medium of his creativity um, and take it from the interpersonal to the social as well. Um, 
the best rock and roll bands and the people who have inspired me have been inherently political because it's caring of everybody in the audience. It's looking at your entire audience and having a viewpoint. It's speaking truth to the powers that exploit that audience. I mean, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Bob Marley, the best of the best. They were all political. Bob mm -hmm. Marley was killed. Bob Marley was assassinated by the CIA. So, yes, politics is involved in Guns N' Roses. Yes, and it, we, we spoke about last episode just the irony of it being guns and, and roses, of course. But there are a few things that you had yep. said and said in there, and this also, I guess, this can lead into uh, appropriately the uh, one of the fan questions we got uh, for you, and it's uh, a countryman, uh, one of our loyal listeners, Gavin from the UK. This was on Facebook, so this actually involves uh, both Mitch and Alan, and it's perfect in the Civil War. It's like I planned this. Uh, he goes. Hey there, I see you have Alan and Mitch coming on soon. I have a question, please. Mitch was going to ask Alan this for some time back when he interviewed him last, but he forgot. Oh, Mitch, apparently. Look at this. Fans, uh, they <laughs> they pay attention. Anyway, this is perhaps my... It, perhaps it's selective memory. Perhaps. Uh, I, I get it. I, you and I, we, we both know what... Anyway, we, we, we're a side right. podcaster uh, conversation later. Uh, he goes, anyway, this is my question. Basically, it's about uh, Axel, excuse me, Izzy in Civil War. Civil War was recorded many months before the proper user illusion session started. It was completely separate from the illusion, illusion sessions. Izzy was not on the demo or the actual finished song, according to the user illusion 2 booklet credits. He, I, I just want to know uh, why Izzy had no involvement in, in the recording of that song. Seems odd, especially as it was the last song done with Adler. Uh, yeah, I know it's a mouthful. Yeah, it, 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 it's a mouthful. Um, if you can answer, it's it, it's it's well, no, it, it's remembering the moment mm. and remembering other people's states of mind in that situation at that time too. Um, it, it's no secret that there was a, a sense of fragmentation in the band um, and it was being played out creatively uh, during the making of Illusions um, and again it, this, this is obviously no, no big surprise and something I'm sure I've probably said too many times before uh, but for me Use Your Illusions is when we started to lose the original band and become the Elton Elton Rose band. And mm. Izzy was not comfortable with it. Um, Slash was not comfortable with it. But there was very much a sense in those days of whatever, whatever we have to do to get along, we'll make the minimal compromises we have to, but let's just try and keep this moving along for now. Um, so there are, there's material. I think Use Your Illusions, basically, somewhere in there is one really good record. Hmm. Uh, I think there's material on there that is could use rethinking or editing or is not really of the essence of the Appetite for Destruction band. And... Yeah, I love bands to develop. I think all artists should develop. Um, just for me, some of that material went too far too soon. 
Um, and I'm going to make a point here while it pops in my head. Uh, for the record, I had absolutely no influence on Izzy leaving the band, and it came as a shock and a surprise to me when he did. Um, but when you compare Coma to Dust, Dust and Bones, you can see where the fragmentation is. What makes you... It's interesting, because I know... That's why, isn't that why uh, Coma was added to the set list for Not In This Lifetime? Because it's one of Slash's favorite, uh, favorites to play? Or, or maybe that was a different fragmentation that I'm, you know, maybe like Izzy didn't like that song. Because I'm, I'm, I'm just surprised that Coma is the example. Uh, well, Coma or, you know, and, and any of those long, complex pieces, um, which, you know, Stephen had a, a nightmare trying to play the same way twice. Uh, that was definitely not where Izzy's consciousness was. Um, if, you know, the, to me, Dust and Bones is the purest moment of Izzy on that record. Sure. Yeah, because, I mean, well, he's singing on it, <laughs> sure. Well, it's the feel, it's the attitude, it's, uh, you know, and for, for me, too, and again, try and hear me clearly on this, cause, because I'm twisting an old phrase people mishear me sometimes mm -hmm. but to me Izzy was the heart of the soul of the band um, and when you start to lose a degree of Izzy's input then that band is becoming something else now it doesn't mean to say that what the band is becoming is good or bad because it's not connecting to the fundamentals that Izzy brought to it, but it's definitely changing. And, and not just for Izzy, but for you as well. Uh, so then let's just take a couple steps back to see before we get to that specific moment then when things were changing and starting to break off. Uh, so let's just go back to when you moved to the States and when you like, were there steps before you met the members of GNR? How did we get there? And I know you, you've spoken about this before, but not on here. Uh, well, it was, um, I went there to work for a company called Green World. Right. Uh, while I was at Green World, uh, I signed a band called Motley Crue. Um, you say that so flippantly, too. Oh, just Motley Crue. But how do you, like, okay, let's start there then. How did Motley Crue even, like, happen? Oh, their manager walked through the door. And I would say that we were the very last port of call on the train track that he thought he might be able to get somebody to uh, uh, respond um, he'd, he'd been um, blown out of uh, every label and sub-label in L.A., and he eventually decided he was going to drive all the way down to the South Bay and go and look at this tiny little operation called Green World. And uh, Mark Wesley gave me um, a cassette of the material and said, uh, you know, go home and play this and tell me if you think we should get involved with it. And I went home, and at that point, the stereo I had at home was an old JVC boombox with a pair of Sennheiser speakers. Um, hmm. I'd only just basically landed in California, and I was living very, very light because I didn't know how long it was going to last. And I sat there with my headphones on and went, I can only describe this record as a glorious fucking train wreck. <laughs> 
I mean, it is not that well recorded and it's not that well executed, but it certainly has an attitude and it certainly has an en energy. And there's one song in here that I think is as good as anything Cheap Chick have written, um, that song being Piece of Your Action. Oh. So I went into Greenworld the next day and said, fuck yes. <laughs> power of the, the, the power of the word yes again. Yeah. So it was Alan Kaufman coming down. Um, it certainly wasn't me being in a club and going, oh my, they're great. I've got to sign them. The guy came down with a tape. I listened to the tape and I went, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to sign them sight unseen. When I saw them, I was a little apprehensive. Um, the drummer was good. The guitar player was okay. The bass player couldn't play bass to save his life. <laughs> and they had this absurdly over-the-top image that only Americans like Kiss can, and, and Alice Cooper can, uh, can muster up. I mean, you know, even the most... Ex what about Bowie? What about Bowie? Bowie's over, was over. I knew Bowie was coming. But, you know, <laughs> there was... There was a progression there, and let me tell you, Bowie had a pair of fucking legs. I, I, <laughs> Fair enough, okay. <laughs> I saw him twice in the first week of his Ziggy tour and was thoroughly confused to see him in a miniskirt. <laughs> his legs were just, oh my God, how does a guy have a pair of legs like that? <laughs> Well, somewhere David Bowie is smiling at that comment. That's that's fucking yeah. hilarious. After Motley Crue, I I sat with the owners of Greenworld and said, you know, make me a partner in the company. I I just, you know, I do your sales, I do your marketing. I've just handled this band. I just took them to a lecturer. I just got a big check for the company that saved us from going bankrupt. I think I deserve to be considered to be a partner. Damn right. They well, they turned me down. Fuck them. Some people like the idea of ownership more than that, which, you know, they love that which they own. Mm. Um, it was a status thing for them. And um, that left me at a point where I had to say, well, then I'm leaving. And uh, a couple of the owners did not want me to leave for obvious reasons and came up with the idea of let's start a label. So that was Enigma. Mm. And the, first, the first band I signed to Enigma was a band called Berlin who had this stunning um, singer. She's beautiful. Terry, Terry Nunn. Just stunning. And a, a lot of fun, great personality, just, you know, couldn't perform very well in those days, but she had a voice and she had an attitude, and she was a lot of fun to, fun to work with. This is all, of course, pre- uh... Talk about bands changing. You know, from what yeah. they were. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, her manager and I scratched up, I think it was about 600 bucks to record a song called Sex that we put on the first release, which made itself known through K-Rock. But uh, during that period of time, uh, there was one day I was coming into the office and uh, my assistant said, um, I've got a friend who's got an album who would like to bring it in for you. I was like, absolutely, again, yes, mm. Bring, tell him to come. And I'm sitting in my uh, fishbowl of an office one day, and this magnificent white 1957 Bentley pulls up. And that gets my attention straight away. Who in Redondo Beach or Torrance has got 
the imagination and the class to drive one of those. And this guy gets out, he walks into my office, he puts his feet up on my desk straight away, flips me an album, and without saying hello, I am, or anything else, he said, I want you to do for me what you just did for Motley Crue. And that guy was a guy called Don Dorkin. And uh, his record actually was um, technically superior uh, to the Motley record. Um, far better recording, uh, better songs. And in those days, he had a, a young and aggressive voice and vocal delivery. And it was a really good little record all the way around. Um, so much so that I couldn't sign it. And the reason I couldn't sign it was, and, and Don was mortified. You know, I called him in and I sat him down. And I said, I cannot in all conscience sign you to, this, to our organization here because you're 30 years old. And in all conscience, it would take me a year or two to get this record noticed in any way, shape or form. Uh, you need to be signed to a label immediately. You don't mm. need to be signed to a small label. You're 30 years old. In those days, being 30 years old to me was a big deal. I mean, you know, that was that was getting on. I, I mean, I get it. I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, and I took his record to uh, Elektra, who initially turned it down. So then I took it to Cliff and Peter at Q Prime, uh, Bernstein and Mensch. Um, who you might know from Metallica and Def Leppard and so on. And Cliff and Peter took him on, and then Electra took him on. Um, and out of that circumstance, Don and I formed a friendship, and we ended up living together. And um, it was he who introduced me to a band called Dante Fox, which I thought was a ridiculous name. <laughs> uh, and they became Great White. Uh. Um, so... Again, trying to get through it quickly, that's how I get to the point of getting into management with Great White mm -hmm. and, and leaving Enigma. And I got them signed to EMI pretty quickly. They made a disastrous first record. Um, and the conventional wisdom is if, if, if you make a, a shitty debut record, you're done. Forget about it. But I had a slightly different viewpoint on it. My viewpoint was wait a minute, if you thought we were signing a year and a half ago, we're much more worthwhile now because we've been through a year and a half of learning. We've learned how to record. We've been out on the road with White Snake for a month. We've been out on the road with Judas Priest for six months. This is, this is a better entity than it was a year and a half ago, but such is the way that L.A. thinks, you're, you're now poison. And where I thought there would be, you know, seven or so labels that were interested before uh, would offer us a deal. They were all seven pissed off bridesmaids. And I ended up in a situation of realizing, well, if I believe in this, then I'm going to have to find a way to make a record myself. Um, so I borrowed some money and bit by bit we constructed a record. And uh, lo and behold, one of the tracks on it became the song of the year on KLOS and got 16 weeks of heavy rotation on KMET, despite the fact it was an, in an independent release, and neither of those stations played independent releases in those days. Um, and that was a song called Face Today. 
And, uh, of course, you know, that brought my stock up a little bit in L.A. And it was probably as much out of that as anything else that uh, Zoots was able to come from Geffen and say, are you interested in signing this this band that I've just signed called Guns N' Roses? Um, and at the time, I wasn't. Uh, he came back a second time and asked me, by which time I'd done some research. And Zoots is a dear friend of mine. And I sat him down and I said, you're out of your beloved fucking mind. <laughs> this band is going to be the end of your career. You know, everything I've heard about them is that they are completely off the charts with their behavior and their indulgences. And you'll never get anything done with them. And they will just be a fucking nightmare for you. And you're saying that as someone who managed Motley Crue or worked with Motley Crue. I, I didn't manage Motley Crue. No, that's why I changed my, my phrasing. But like knowing yeah. Motley Crue, I mean, they were, were they more no. so than Motley oh. in, your, in your eyes? Oh, absolutely. Um, mm. Frank, Nikki Six, uh, is very much of the Gene Simmons mold. Um, very ambitious and a very smart marketeer. Uh, Guns N' Roses were attitude unconfined. And um, Zoots actually came back a third time and said, look, you're right. I have been told by Rosenblatt that he's not going to record an album with this band unless they get management. I can't get anybody to manage them. At the very least, will you pretend to manage them? <laughs> And I looked at Zooty and I said, Zooty, I can't pretend to do fucking anything, but I will go and talk to them and see, you know. And it started from there, you know, and I started to fall in love with the entity. And, it, you know, Izzy and Slash, I found very engaging. And the fact that they were impossible was also irresistible. <laughs> mm. You know, from a, from a calculating point of view, I looked at it and I went, well, I can't make the situation any worse than it is. So if I improve the situation, then people are going to consider I've got some chops. So on that side of it, it's not a bad thing to consider. On the other side, it's going to take an awful lot of time, and I've just gotten Great White re-signed, and I don't want to take anything away from my concentration on getting that to where it should be. It's a, a ridiculous thing to take on, and I've just had my first child, and I need to be very smart about what I'm doing, but there was something irresistible about them. Hmm. I like that. That's a quotable. Uh, so what was your first interaction officially with them? Was it with the management? Was it with a certain specific members? Oh. It was, <laughs> um, I love the, the, the laugh track. Love it, Mitch. Uh, the, uh, the management that they had at the time, um, Arnold Stiefel, and Randy Phillips were desperately trying to offload them and get away from them as fast as possible. Um, and Zoots took me to a Troubadour show to see them play for the first time. And in the uh, dressing room afterwards, I noticed that Duff picked up a vase of flowers that had a card in it that was an apology card from the management of not being there and then he winged it right across the room into a waste paper basket on the other side of the room. And I took note of that, and I thought, well, that probably 
defines the nature of the relationship between the band and current management um, and certainly shows a certain attitude in the band. Um, the first time I really spoke to them was at um, Pasha Studios when they were doing demos. The demos that we later put audio, you know, false live audio on to make Live Like a Suicide. Mm. And I sat in with with Hans, uh, Hans Peter Huber, I think I remember his name as, who was the engineer who was um, doing the mixing, and he and I sat in and, and, and mixed that together. What are your, because uh, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know we've been talking for an hour. And by the way, I also noticed when Mitch said that in his interview with you, and then it went on for like another half an hour, 45 minutes. So I know you're you're a true mensch, Alan, but I, guess I, I know I don't want to keep you forever. Uh, uh, it's it's Sunday. Uh, if uh, if it were cl- getting close to seven fifty five, I'd be getting antsy, and my answers would be getting short. Uh, there's no hockey for a while, so you know, however long you want, get it while it's there. <laughs> I, I like I appreciate that. So uh, I mean, I'm, now I'm just envisioning, envisioning the Duff just throwing thing uh, the vase across the room, and that that scene from Airheads. Uh, he wipes his ass with his record contract. I love this guy. I, I just picture a picture of you being. <laughs> I love this guy. You know, I, I want to work with this. Uh, so that was your first introduction to Duff. I, I want to know about uh, you know Axel because, and this is going to tie into. And I'm glad you are more in depth with uh, the mental illness and, and how it all ties in, so we can get into like you know uh, deeper conversations with it. So I always like again, I identify with uh, with Axel and. Whatever his persona was at the time and in, 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 uh, is now, uh, but what was it like meeting him for the first time? Did you like what were you? I know you were warned about the band, but was there any warning about him specifically uh, that you got? Superficially and initially, I thought he'd be the least of my problems because he presented uh, in a very reserved and very polite manner. Uh, whereas um, when I first when I went to my first band meeting, um, only Izzy and Slash were there, and Izzy nodded out at the table, hmm. which left me and Slash. And Duff was a raging alcoholic, and uh, Stephen was, was, you know, an alcoholic. Um, I thought Axel was going to be the least least of my problems. Uh, that the, the uh, behavior and the indulgence of the others was going to be far more significant to deal with. Hmm. Then, uh, what were some of your the, the best memories of starting? I mean, pa- getting past all the, you know, you just had your kid and the stress of it. Like, when did it, I guess, click, be like, you know what, maybe I do have something here and I'm not just taking a chance. Like, oh, I have nothing to lose if I, you know, improve this band by 5%, you know, uh, I am a winner. But was there a moment where it clicked for you, perhaps, at the beginning that you, that you can reflect on a positive uh, moment? I thought we made a really good record. Um, watching Thompson and Barbiero mix manually instead of using an automated board was magical. Uh, they were in a form of dance. It was wonderful to watch two people connect to making rock and roll in such a physical way instead of just sitting there and you know programming a fader. Um, they did everything manually, and, and that was tremendous. Um, but to be perfectly honest, Brandon, um, once the record was made, I knew that we were 
going to have a nightmare of a time getting any AOR radio play. Um, my, pers- my viewpoint on this is I'm going to have to go through England and we're going to have to go through touring. And good luck keeping this band touring. Uh, my hope was that it might, if we got lucky and if we, we did some good work, that we might get to a point where it may eventually go gold that I thought it would be one of the coolest underground rock and roll bands around. I had no idea, no vision, no perception that it would become the best-selling debut rock and roll record of all time. Mm. And if anybody says that they do believe that, and I know that, you know, God bless him, I love Zooty to death. He claims it. I think Axel claims it. No, let's be honest. Let's go back to the day and go, my God, we were, like, we were wondering if we could get through a 10-week tour back then. The odds were that when we went out with the cult, that they had come back with their tails between their legs looking for their dealers within about 10 days. Mm. You know, I remember really clearly in the Hell House, uh, before, it was before we went to England for the first time, and I was on one side of the room and the entire band were on the other side of the room around a really ratty, disgusting, stinking couch. And I was explaining to them what to expect in travel and circumstance when we went over there. And one of them looked at me and said, Niv, do you think we can do this? To which I replied, that's why I'm fucking here. <laughs> This sounds so much like Spinal Tap, and, and you're the manager just trying to get shit done. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've had many Spinal Tap moments in your career, I can only imagine. Um, actually, I resent that. Do you? Think, yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, forgive me. I'm an asshole. I don't think, I don't think we're Spinal Tap in any way. Um, I have seen... I'm not saying you're Spinal Tap. I'm just saying there are certain moments, but talking with the band and the manager that are Spinal Tappy. No, no, you're not a Spinal that part well, of the movie. That said, um, Great White did get lost under the circular stage of the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool. One <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 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 hey, the sharks. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they, they're not the best of swimmers. They're not the, the or they can't. They don't have the best sense of direction. I guess. Sharks go. Sharks go after blood in the water. Jack Russell went after chemicals in the water. <laughs> now, I'm sure that's not the first time you said that either. That's too funny. Actually, that is. Actually, is it? It's the first time I've said that. Oh well, it it, it came off too easily. So uh, I, I assumed. Um, well, I'm getting. I'm almost awake now. I'm almost lucid. My second cup of coffee just hit. <laughs> right on. Right on. Uh, so then we ask with, when the tours that they didn't know that you would come home from. I got some questions about specific tours, and you know if anyone remembers any of them, it's not just with you. Uh, that's why I think it's hilarious that Adler said he's coming out with a second book about what friends remember that he did that he doesn't remember. I just think that's fucking hilarious. Um, first one I got, this is from uh, Johan, is on also Facebook, from, from Rhode Island. Uh, ask Alan about the GNR Maiden tour. Uh, so <laughs> that that says it all. So, uh, any memories of the of the, you know? Because I I know uh, Bruce Dickinson doesn't really like Axel, right? Or is it mutual? Well, or? 
here, here was my situation from uh, a, a simple uh, professional pragmatic point of view. Uh, we needed to be on tour to keep the record supported, to keep Geffen focused on the record, to keep the record moving. And we'd been through um, the problem in Phoenix, which cost us supporting ACDC, and David Lee Roth walked away from us. And the only person who had a tour going out at that moment was um, Rod Smallwood. And I called Rod up and asked him if he'd be so kind as to think about taking guns out and he very kindly said he would and believe you me most managers and bands looked at guns and roses and went yeah we'll take those cowboys out you know mm, like- god knows what's going to happen um, <laughs> but, but, but rod very kindly said the band could go out on tour with maiden and it was also a relief to me because when I had the band on a tour bus, it was easier to wrangle the cats and keep the dealers away. Mm. You knew where they were and you could keep them moving. So you had a better chance of mitigating certain destructive indulgences. But I knew we were in trouble when the very first show, um, I get a phone call from Izzy and he's going, Niv, what the fuck? And I'm going, what's up, Izzy? What's happened now? He goes, we just did sound check, man. And there are all these cardboard icebergs on the stage. What the fuck is this? <laughs> and at that moment, I knew we had a match made in hell. And it probably wasn't going to last long. And Axel came down with a really bad throat condition, which very fortunately didn't last very long. Hmm. I, I I can read between the lines there. So I, they were not. Maybe they, they didn't even see Eddie. He had a problem with the icebergs. That's uh. He had a problem. He he. My God, I had you know. Had he seen Eddie straight away, we probably wouldn't have got one show done. Um, that's crazy but, to me. I mean, like, I don't know Eddie's so iconic, and I mean, I know GNR. Even now, they're not the kind of band with a lot of stage stuff. I mean, other than Pyro, uh, are they turned off to you know people like bands like. Gore, or you know, or I'm just trying to think yeah. of bands that really do big productions. You know, maybe of course they're they may think differently now, but back then, I don't know. I'm it's I guess find that interesting. There's a different form of authenticity to GNR music, and it's a little more fundamental and a little more to the point. Um, but that led that left me with no tour to go on whatsoever at a critical moment in the development of the. Uh, of the record and there was only one tour left and that was the Aerosmith tour and I went to uh, they were fortunately on Geffen thank God and I went to Eddie Rosenblatt and told him that he had to deliver that tour for us um, and basically bully Tim Collins into putting us on the bill which again was Tim Collins had just had them all go through rehab um, the Aerosmith environment was incredibly clean. Right. There was this, you know, none of that. And the idea of GNR being on that bill, I mean, David Geffen must have really pushed Tim Collins' arm right up between his shoulder blades. Hmm. Uh, another question we got, and this is, uh, you know, going along the theme of, of tours. Were you on the tour uh, in 89 with the uh, the Rolling Stone shows? 
Because this is coming from yeah. Uh, yeah. Layla de Sosa. I can't pronounce the name. It's a, at L.A. Whatever. It's a Twitter name. I asked your, your question. You'll know who you are. <laughs> so uh, he, he asked that. So what, so what is the question about the, he, he He wants to know if you were managing when the, everything went down in 1989 at the Rolling Stone shows. Is there any uh, oh. insight in how things went down? Oh, absolutely. Um, we were offered the entire tour. Um, and it might sound like a, a large sum of money that we were offered for opening. But from my point of view, at this point, I felt my band were a bona fide um, touring band and closing band in their own right at that stage. And I was not that overwhelmed with the idea that we would help Mick Jagger get richer at our expense. And Mick has always had a, a propensity to take the young or the new glittering act out to boost the Rolling Stones profile. Now, bear in mind that I am a dyed-in-the-wool Rolling Stones fan. Um, I love Keith Richards with a passion. And for me, on a personal level, just to be in a position where a band I'm working with gets offered a tour, ordinarily, we would have been just unimaginable, sure. just too fantastic. Mm -hmm. But when I applied my due diligence, I didn't think it was a very good idea. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, the condition of two of the members of the band was such as I was genuinely concerned that they might not last the entire tour. And I'm not going to risk anybody's life for a tour. Um, was that so? Was, was that agreed upon then? When you would, so it was your decision to 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 not do the entire tour, and was would, yeah. No, it's my decision. Right. And, you know, I, both Slash and Izzy especially were, come on, Niv, we've got a tour of the Rolling Stones. And I went, no, we're not going to do it. And interestingly enough, um, we got an, an, another phone call from Jagger's office a little later that wanted to know if we would play four shows at the L.A. Coliseum. So again, I did a little bit of due diligence because this seemed doable. It was our hometown. Uh, I didn't have to take anybody on the road. Um, it was only four shows uh, over a period of five days. But I did a bit of due diligence there, and I, I found that holding four, four nights at the L.A. Coliseum, even for the Rolling Stones back then, was a little bit ambitious, that they could probably do two without much problem. But to do four, they needed some extra sizzle. And obviously Guns N' Roses at that point were the loudest sizzle in rock and roll. Um, so I went back and said, yeah, we'll do the four, but it's for a million dollars. And our agent, uh, Bill Elson at the time, a very dry intellect made the comment to me on the phone of, that's rather extravagant. 
we'll have to see what Mr. Jagger says. But that's what they agreed to pay the band. And the interesting thing to me was we cleared about the same amount of money as if we'd done the whole tour at what they initially offered us. So fiscally, we came out even in the end. You wouldn't make any money. It's, that's, that's something. Like, you wouldn't think that. Oh, getting paid a million dollars for four shows in your own hometown. I mean, we had no buses. We only had the crew for a few days. I mean, you know, it was almost all profit. Whereas oh. what they were, what they were going to pay us to open um, would have amounted that had we been able to get through the entire tour, we might have cleared three quarters of a mil. Hmm. And that's your job, obviously. Uh, to, yeah, that's my job. Yeah. So uh, that that is fascinating. Uh, yeah, and and you know, I'd, I'll say something about about Axel. And again, this is a novel observation, but it's come in the moment. Um, this I will say about Axel. I mean, it's no secret that for some reason he detests me, and obviously I think he was poisoned, and I obviously have an idea of who that that poisoner was. Um, but the one thing I'll say about my relationship with Axel is it's authentic. I might be the only person on the planet who wouldn't blow smoke up his ass. You would think you would want that. I mean, that's just not what I want. And again, only what you can answer. Why do you think that is he detests you or the poisoning thing? Uh, why? Because he's nowadays how fan, our, our perception is he seems to be in a good place. You know, so it could be he was poisoned back when you were around him. So I, if you can just elaborate on that, if you could. Well, I mean, it's really simple, isn't it? I don't have to mention names. I mean, Mama said, if you can't say anything nice about G-Swine, don't say it. Um, but, you know, you have to look at who took over um, and what their role was at the time. But um, what, I, what, what, I, what I would say is that I am genuinely awed by the workload that Axel has taken on both in the fact that the tour lasted for 18 months and the fact that he ended up performing for over three hours. Uh, nobody saw that coming. Absolutely nobody saw that coming. And you have to take your hat off to him individually for that workload. I mean, the guy's in his 50s and he's out there singing for three hours. I mean, you know, that kicks Pavarotti in the ass. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, we've discussed that, too. The only other person I can think of that's doing anything close to that is Springsteen, but he doesn't put the same amount of energy uh, into the shows as Axel. And, you know, the, the, the band breaks, it's just, it's, it's different. I, uh, so it is quite fascinating. I guess that leads to one of the questions that was, and maybe this is what you were alluding to, uh, in, in the change of management. So this is from, okay, this is from uh, one of our good listeners in, uh, in Ireland. Uh, this is from uh, Mr. Mac. He goes, uh, five years to get GNR from clubs and bars in Wembley. Then uh, Goldstein takes over and takes three, four years for it to crumble. So if you have a comment on that, if you want to comment, that's a, that was one of the questions that we got. My only observation on that is it didn't take three years to crumble. It took three months. Mm. It was three months after I was gone, Izzy was gone. And in point of fact, I had to... Uh, I was actually in Switzerland at the time, 
And I look at my phone and I go, why is Zizi calling me? And he was telling me that he'd had enough, there'd been some major fracas and problem in Germany and it had freaked him out entirely and he was done with it all. And they still had uh, their first show at Wembley coming up and I had to talk him into going to the Wembley gig. In fact, I I rented him a, uh, a suite at the hotel nearest the uh, the venue and told him, look, just tell somebody on the crew to call you when Axel's there and then you can go down and be a part of the gig and play. But, you know, you cannot walk away from this gig. Um, you, it, it will have a detrimental effect, not just on the band, but on you as well. So you have to see it through, see this, this Wembley gig through. Um, but he was done after that Wembley gig. And again, I'm going to reiterate this. Um, I had no idea that Izzy was going to jump, and I had no idea that he was going to jump that fast. But for me, once Izzy was gone, um, that is a major, 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 major element of the band gone. And, you know, from there on, it's just a matter of time as it all falls apart. So, well done, Doug. <laughs> well, I hope to get uh, Doug on the show at some point and get his version of it, of course. But, uh, I mean, you, you see it. I mean, when you were there, the upswing, and of course, there could be many variables to the downswing. So... Just wanted to get your your viewpoint on it. Uh, of course, a lot of questions, but I'll, I'll narrow it down just to one person to give him credit since he's a loyal listener. Uh, Garrett from Texas. Uh, he simply goes, "How is Izzy?" A lot of people just want to know. So, are, are you still in contact? Do you speak with uh with, with Izzy Stradlin? Um, I haven't spoken with Izzy for a while. He did come out and visit me in Arizona a few years back, and uh, he's been in a long term relationship with a lovely French lady Ooh la la. Uh, his his obsession is surfing and mountain bikes um he, to my knowledge he's still really healthy good and hopefully he's he's happy i hear indirectly from him once in a blue moon through a mutual friend um but we don't we don't talk okay gotcha um, then this relates to just your thoughts on Izzy, I guess. This is coming from uh, mygnrforum.com, uh, username Stranger in This Town, but they're from Germany. Questions from everywhere. Uh, do you think that Izzy would be up for joining? I know they, it's a loaded question. And, you know, of course, uh, Izzy went on stage with Axel when it was, you know, with, with the Bumblefoot, and uh, Izzy went on with Velvet Revolver. Um, and there's just been a lot of dispute whether he would join the reunion and the tweet that came out. It was about money. So I don't want to get there just now. Uh, but do you think that Izzy might be just up for just joining? And maybe like the tour might be too much, but just to like to make new music again? Because it seemed like him and Axel were still friends and him and Slash were still friends. So as someone who at least has known him for a while, yes, you don't. You're not uh, Snapchatting him every day and everything. But do you, do you foresee anything in the future with Izzy and this band? Or Guns N' Roses, I should say? It's a, it's a, specu- it's a hypothetical speculation. Oh, of course. It's just your viewpoint uh, while I have you on. And again, you can say, hey, you know, I don't have an opinion on it. Uh, you know, it is, it's, well, he just surfs and that's his life. I have no idea. Um, uh, my, my, my hypothetical speculation is that that moment came and went. And they should have involved him in the last tour. And I would think that Izzy is pretty angry hmm. that he wasn't 
treated with equality and wasn't a part of this tour. He did get as far as flying out and doing a sound check, and then he left after the sound check. He didn't want to didn't want to have any anything to do with it. When was that? Uh, last year. Hmm. It, it would it was somewhere out in the Midwest somewhere. Um, when they were doing the uh, stadiums, and um, so just like a random it, show like Adler, it, it, it may have yeah. been. Is it? Oh, hmm. Yeah, and you know, obviously, had it gone well and everybody been happy, and you know, had there been a, a little bit of brotherhood, you know, it, I'm I'm sure he would have stayed with it. But something must have really upset him because he left after the sound check and never turned up for another one or an appearance. And I would think that right now he's probably a little pissed off. Hmm. I can understand that. Uh, another question, this is also from IGNRforum.com, uh, from Greece, uh, username Blackstar. Uh, you're quoted in Mick Wall's book as saying Aaron Everly and uh, Megan, slash his girlfriend, for those who don't know, had a big part in bringing Axel and Slash back together. Uh, so can you tell us more about that story? Is that actually information or just an opinion of yours? Uh, it's it's not an opinion. It was a piece of information that I was given. Okay. Hmm. So I mean, Megan, follow. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, 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 and that uh, and, and that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that the girls were able to put a little bit of oil on the water and and, and bring Slash and. Uh, acts together that doesn't surprise me at all this goes into the relationship things that we're talking about you know the relationships that you've had and what izzy has now and how that helps you with with mental health and that seemed a lot of people were saying and i've you know i've never met slash i don't know perla you know the only connection i have i was lucky enough to interview his 15 year old kid in london so i don't know but the divorce and how megan seems to be uh, putting Slash in a certain mindset, so that relationship seems to have affected, you know, again, this is just speculation on the outside, but you, at least knowing these people to a degree, uh, kind of saying the same thing, that the relationships uh, is what fixed theirs, you know. The, the, Slash's yeah. girlfriend fixed his, uh, his, his, his real girl, his work, his real uh, girlfriend fixed his work wife, or whatever that phrase is, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, Brandon, we all need at least one relationship that we can invest trust and ourselves in into and you know i'm i'm just delighted that slash and megan are back together after you know because megan was slash's girlfriend for a while in 88 and she took one look around her and said i can't deal with this this is too fucking crazy and got out of it hmm. but you know thank god they eventually got back together again um because she's a wonderful person and obviously somebody that Slash can absolutely trust and be himself with. Um, we, all, we all need somebody in our life that we feel accepts us for being who we are. Do you think, because uh, of course Aaron is mentioned in this, in this as well, do you think that's something Axel had, was missing with him? Because you know, uh, Duff is a family man, Slash is a family man. Uh, they all... I mean, even within the band, like not original members. I mean, Frank has kids. On, do you think that's something that's always eluded Axel? Maybe that was something that, that, that hurt him for a while and maybe it would stop him from... Un, 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 undoubtedly. I mean, obviously, Axel has got some 
major family issues. And I'm not going to go there because it's I wouldn't want you to, sure. Right. But it's not, not appropriate. But Agreed. the family issues, you know, in some degree stem from his own family. And to my knowledge, he's never married. And to my knowledge, he's never been a father himself. Of course he's missed out on something essential in life. Um, you know, what, what, whatever you think about Team Brazil, the one thing you have to acknowledge is that they provided stability and family for him. Right, right. I'm, I'm, del- I'm delighted that he has that from them. Are they the best managers in the world? No, I think Cliff and Peter are the best managers in the world. Um, Bernstein and Mensch. But um, you have to have some sanity and you have to have some firm ground in the foundation of your home. Otherwise, you're going to go off spinning. And all of us, all of us involved with GNR have gone off spinning at one time or another. Hmm. No, you're, you're, you're right. And again, that's what drew me into this band and the characters within the band. And just getting your perspective of somebody who, you know, met them at the beginning. Well, not the beginning, but when they were making the name for themselves, finally. And, of course, you helped them, uh, them out with that. Um, another question, kind of divert to, from something that's not as as deep. Um, this is, comes from Twitter. Javier, uh, he wants to know if uh, how many shows were professionally recorded during your tenure uh, with the band? Any uh, unseen appetite or lies gig collecting dust somewhere? Anything that... You know, because GNR fans love our our bootlegs and unreleased material. So, uh, if you know of any, we would we would love to know. Well, I know Tommy Zootout would love for the marquee shows to be um, mixed and mastered properly and, and put out. Um, one story that you know we all make big mistakes in our lives, and I'll never forget going into Geffen and being with Eddie Rosenblatt and, and saying, we're playing the Roxy uh, in, a, in, a, in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be the last L.A. club show because then we're going out on tour with the cult. And this may well be our last L.A. club gig. And would you put up five grand so as I can get a truck and record it? And he turned me down. And I sometimes sit there and try and extrapolate how many millions of dollars that would have generated for Geffen and Universal if they'd just come up with five grand at that moment. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I think the, uh, the one recording that... I know that Tommy would like, like to, to um, see the light of day properly is the, uh, the stuff we recorded at the Marquee. Anything from... Uh, videos other than just shows because I, I was talking to Mitch off the air and he had a he had to hop off the call just for a second but there was something and this has been a talk amongst GNR fans is all the 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 uh, the tour bus videos like there could be eventually a behind the scenes of GNR that may be uh, waiting in the wings at some point for uh, to be released do you know anything of that well to be honest Brandon it's so long ago my memory of that would be um, less than dependable. That's a fair answer. That's fair. The, the, the one thing that comes to mind is the It's So Easy video, which I think you can find online now. I mean, you know, there's nothing hidden and nothing is private in this world anymore. You're right. Mm. 
Um, but the It's So Easy video, I canned it because I thought it was going to have a really negative impact on acts um, because of some of the scenes in it. And uh, ironically, when he went through his divorce with Aaron, he tried to find <laughs> the masters for it so that he could can it and her and her lawyer couldn't get a hold of it. But, um, you know, even that somehow is out there, you know, as a, as a, as a rough edit. And I think what you have to assume is in this day and age, uh, if there was any recording device anywhere, it'll come bubbling up on the fucking Internet one way or another, whether it should or not. Yeah, just ask our president, you know, grab her by the, uh, you know, who would have thought that would have came out. <laughs> so, oh, I know. To a much lesser extent of, of, of uh, recording quality or whatever. Uh, just again, just these are just uh, there's so many questions and I can't get to them all. But I want to uh, go back to focus more on, on you um, and just so your, your post GNR life and everything that's been going on. Uh, what's I want to know more about Alan Niven today. You know everything that happened after GNR. You mentioned depression. Whatever you're comfortable sharing, because I, I will say this could be I guess a segue. This was. Uh, uh, another, I guess another question. I think this is from um, my my buddy uh, Johan from Sweden. You're one of the places that you love from my GNR forum. He just wants to know how you felt when once when you saw the band you once managed start headlining all these uh, these shows on the, the the stadium shows and use your illusion. And you alluded to some of it before that it was depressing, and which is a understandable feeling to have. Uh, the, the the fracture of the relationships. Uh, the sense of betrayal, uh, the sense, and I, I eventually found that every major relationship in my life at that time involved a degree of betrayal. That put me in depression. In terms of uh, what they've done in the last year and a half, um, to be perfectly honest, I am absolutely thrilled for Slash. Um, he's playing better than he's ever played in his life. He could definitely have become a rock and roll casualty at some point, um, especially after I was was not managing him anymore. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of is the fact that none of them died, and that was a battle. Yeah. Um, I will get, and I'll give kudos to um, Goldstein there because he put an awful lot of effort into that with me um, and was, was a, a very significant part of keeping people alive. Um, so I'm I'm thrilled that Slash is out there doing that. I mean, he, when he turned 49, he had a bit of a meltdown on, because, you know, as he said, Niv, 50's coming up. And I said to him, I said, listen, and listen to me good. If I could get one decade back to relive, it would be my 50s, because that's the best balance between wisdom, body, heart, and soul mm. that I've ever experienced. And I said, your 50s are going to be the prime of your life. And here he is, what now, 52, and things couldn't be better. You gave him great—you were managing him as a friend instead of just as a—so that's, that's a great thing to say, and I'm glad that you said that. I had a—please, I had a fucking nervous breakdown at 24. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in my mid-20s soon. Oh, my God. So I, I know it's ridiculous. And your, I will tell you, your 50s will be the prime of your life. 
Uh, hey, I'm not even 40 yet, so pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> you, you, you know, you've got things to look forward to. Good, thank and, you. And, and, I, and I will suggest that you will probably look back on your 50s and go, they were pretty damn good. Um, once you hit 60, it's all over. And it's, <laughs> Fair enough. It's start falling apart. Uh, well, I, I have time, and well, it seems like you're living the, the life a little bit. You're, you're wearing your the crocodile Dundee hat wherever I see you in pictures. Uh, you're living out in Arizona, going to Coyotes games. So, I mean, I know there's a big. Well, I, I, I'm, I, I went away from music right. for, a, okay. for, for a long time, uh, and I, I found it. Depressing to to even think about, and and there was a bitterness that I had within me that soured my viewpoint about being involved in anything. And I stupidly opened a bar and put a jukebox in it, so I had to live with, you know, Havana Black, Guns N' Roses, Great White, Motley Crue, Clarence Clemens. Every fucking night of my life. All your ex-girlfriends coming back. Oh, God, what a stupid thing to do. <laughs> um, just nuts. Um, but somebody in that bar looked at me one day, and they looked. At, they had a an epiphanal moment. And they looked at me, and they said, if you don't get back to being creative, if you don't start writing again or recording again or working in it again, you're just going to die, sucker. Mm. And they were, And they were right. And my vitality, what keeps me with a sense of vitality. And I like, when people ask me how old I am, I always answer that's 27, because that's how I feel. And I feel that the spirit does not age. Your body might, but if your spirit is, is, is healthy, it doesn't age. And I've been very fortunate to find and connect with some very worthwhile talent. There's a, uh, a guitar player out of Wales, England, called Chris Buck, who is just absolutely amazing. Um, he recently got voted, and here's an albatross to live with and live, live down, but Total Guitar, which is uh, one of the leading mags over in sure. Europe, the best, best new guitar player in the world. Um, and to have him in my life is wonderful. Um, I made a record with a, a local band called Razor not so long ago, which was a pleasure to do. Um, there are some kids around here who have genuine talent who were, were working on some material. And it's very difficult in this day and age because back in the day, you could plan a strategy uh, there were, say, 20 or so labels you could go to in L.A. and, and try and find a, um, a sympathetic home for a, for a worthwhile player or artist. I mean, it's really hard to get people to notice new talent these days. But we've worked the social media and obviously gotten Chris to a certain level. Um, but it's rock and roll is like malaria. It'll, mm-hmm. always, be, it'll always be in your bloodstream. The difference is, do you have a fever or not? And I would like to say that for the last few years, I've had a mild fever and enjoyed being participating in some worthwhile recordings. And none of the the fever did not include the cowbell, I assume. 
No, no cowboy. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. I have uh, I have Tourette sometimes. Well, that's that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear because you sound good and and you sound healthy and and the what you were able to do, you know, with and, and, and uh, with with GNR with Great White with Clarence Clemens, the great Clarence Clemens, uh, that you have a talent and you clearly love that side. But I can understand. Wanting to leave it behind if you're ha- going through, like, a bad breakup. I mean, you're not going to yeah. want to listen. Like, just, like, you tie it in with social media. If I break up with a girl, I'm not going to want to look through her Facebook or see her come through a, my news feed. I don't want to see her. I want to move on. It uh, sounds like right. I'm coming from a organic place. Uh, so that's that's fascinating. And um, I want to get your thought as we're waiting. I don't know if Mitch is back on the line yet. I'm waiting for him to, uh, to message me that he's back. But you had said some, again, your, your philosophy, and, I, and that's... What I like a lot about you is the way you, you, you think, but I, there were some things that were interesting with the interview with Mitch, and that being with uh, Axel DC. Yeah, the, the, the Axel DC I'm ambivalent about. Um, the older I get, Brandon, the more I see our existence as binary black and white, male, female, good and bad, right and wrong. And I'm just not that comfortable that Axel will go and sing Highway to Hell because I don't think that is really who he is, and I don't think that's really his soul and his spirit. Um, I know why he's doing it. He's having fun, and the pressure's off. Um, But I think Axel has still got an awful lot to offer. He's a very smart and intelligent person and a very good writer. And I would love for him to draw a line in the sand and say, I am of the light. It's it's interesting um, because well, just to refresh you, and I know my audience knows my thoughts on it, because when I first heard Axel was going to be with ACDC, I'm like, this is, just doesn't make any sense. This is weird. Uh, and then I started watching the videos online. And when I got the interview, Scott Ian, he was the same way. So it's, it was interesting that he felt the same that I did. With watching the videos online, I'm like, okay, this is this could work. And then going to, I went to go see them at Madison Square Garden, and it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And actually, I I, I didn't meet Scott Ian at that show. I saw him in the crowd with uh, Charlie Benanti and uh, uh, Daryl Dixon, Walking Dead, coming back tonight. You're gonna watch that. But they were in the crowd, and uh, sorry, I got excited for a second. And Scott and Scott Ian, when I interviewed him, saying that's like well, the best ACDC ACDC show he's ever seen. So it's interesting, those perspectives, but with yours, I mean, because Axel, cause, uh, he grew up on ACDC, grew up on Elton John, you know, Elton and Roses. So, right. And the other thing, and I know Mitch is back on the line, that I'm just curious about, because you being a rock and roll manager, and, and, and especially in the days of GNR when they were really dangerous, but the devil imagery that you had an issue with, is that still a case? Because it, it's not like it's a deicide or cannibal corpse kind of imagery. Oh, I, I, I know, but I've got no time for that at all. Um, it's fair. That's, you know, that's your feelings. That's fine. I'm, I'm just, I'm just yeah. curious of it. It was just yeah. surprised me. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I pointed out earlier, I'm old and ancient and <laughs> the, the back end of the hippie movement. And uh, it's interesting when people use the word dangerous with Guns N' Roses. Um, no band is quote-unquote dangerous. A person who is dangerous is somebody with a pump-action shotgun in their hand and intent to use it. Unfortunately, yes, yeah. You know, but I've 
obviously heard that that comment made many times before. And I have to laugh because to me it's like, okay, so if a band is visceral and they have an intelligence as well and actually make you think about some things, that's dangerous because that to me is GNR, an incredibly visceral band with a really smart intelligence in it. Well, if that's dangerous, guys, that's dangerous. Um, but the thought provocation, I would hope, brings people to being, in the end, positive and of the light and not dumbass and of the darkness. Mm-hmm. What did Jung say? It is better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And to me, a great rock and roll band with a good spirit and a good heart is a lit candle. I, I got it. I like that. I mean, I understand uh, uh, all of that, that, that thought process. And I like what GNR does or did or does when you're talking about the intelligence level. You know, that's why I do like that they are getting political a little bit online. Uh, some more involved, like Dale James or, you know, Richard Fortas makes uh, Facebook posts. Or he can be just as simple like, as Axel just says, fuck Nunez or you know, says some shit about uh, Jeff Sessions. So, I mean, they're still involved. And that's why, I mean, I like ACDC, but they were never as intelligent uh, as mu- of music as GNR, which is why I never... Gra- well, I, don't, I don't have an ACDC podcast for that reason. Uh, so- well, listen, l- listen when, you're t- when you're talking about a- ACDC, I mean, for, first of all, uh, you have to distinguish. And for me, my affection for ACDC is umbilically connected to Bon Scott because he had a wit about him. There was a sense of humor in what he did that I found appealing. Um, The young brothers on their own, I don't find very appealing. That's fair. That's fair. And you, in this country, for now, you are allowed to have your own opinion. (laughs) That's that's cool. Um, Have you... You you know, I, one of one of the bands I worked with is called the Angels, right? Who are very much um, peer group of ACDC uh, in Australia, and the appeal to the Angels for me—they um, were visceral and they were guitar-driven, but they had Doc Neeson, and Doc Neeson was a a wild Irish poet with a magnificent heart. And I loved him. I, I thought Doc Neeson was just one of the best people I ever knew. Um, so I found the Angels far more appealing than the Young Brothers. Fair enough. Um, we'll wrap up uh, here with you. I'm, I'm curious, and I, I mean, I can't even thank you enough for your time. Uh, then I'm curious with... Thank you, thank you for having me interest to having some old, old duffer sitting natter on oh you're not that old i i once spoke to i didn't get to interview him but i want got to speak on the phone with uh clive davis so i mean he's old but he's still there yeah so you're not you're not clive davis or i mean betty white come on i heard slasher hanging out playing with snakes all the time you're not betty white status yet so you're good you're good uh and plus i'm always picking out gray hairs for my 34 year, uh, year old beard it's fine uh then do you foresee um Oh, I should ask, have you seen any of the new, or do you want to see any of the new Guns N' Roses shows? Is that hard? Is that, like an, again, an, an ex-girlfriend in your face? Uh, or even, like, in a lesser level when uh, that, that live concert that they have with uh, with Bumblefoot that's on v- VH1 MTV on all the time, Do you can you go back and watch GNR, whether it be post-you or current? 
Um, it's not something that I've been obliged to react to uh, at this point. Uh, would I buy a ticket or if a friend of mine bought a ticket, would I go and accept it? No, mm. I wouldn't. Uh, if, on the other hand, I got an invitation from the band and they were kind enough to send a car to pick me up and bring me home, then I would graciously accept. All right. Well, I, I hope to start that bridge. I don't know why Axel detests you. You seem like a lovely man. I, I, uh, hopefully this I'll be I'll be uh, your Megan. I'll, I'll see what happens. I'll see if <laughs> I don't know. My boobs aren't as big, though. On, on, on that one, I'd say good luck. <laughs> A boy can dream. Hey, if somebody from not uh, New Zealand slash the UK can once uh, you know go on to manage GNR, crazier things can happen. Uh, I know you're not on social media or anything like that, but uh, is there Deliberately. is there? Yeah, I don't blame you. I only I'm only on it for radio. Uh, is there any way for fans to? I don't know if they want to send you questions or. I mean, of course, you can always come back on here. Invitations always open. Uh, but maybe bands that you are excited about that you want to get out there. Uh, is there anything, any other uh, fan, way fans can connect with you, uh, aside from through Mitch LaFon, like me? <laughs> well, I never used to do interviews back in the day. Um, and good luck trying to find photographs of me back in the day. I was very good at being invisible. I asked that for Mitch. I said, do you have any, any pictures? I can't find any online. Okay. <laughs> No, my attitude was that my bands were quite capable of speaking for themselves, as was their music. Um, in this day and age, I've mitigated it a little bit because I talk to you now. And the quid pro quo is you've let me mention Chris Buck. And that's the main reason why I do it, to yes. point out that there is quality playing, quality music out there from my judgment. And I like to think from the judgment of a lot of other people now um, that it's worth checking out. Um, how about this? If you want, just like how Mitch is doing now, because I, I did interview Mitch before and I got his story of, you know, holding his little hockey stick. Uh, if you want to bring on Chris Buck or anyone you feel that's uh, exciting to you and you want to co-host an episode with me since we already did our interview, I mean, uh the invitation's always there. So if you ever want to co-host and you want to bring someone on, someone that uh, we GNR fans, rock and roll fans should know about, let me know, and I'll be happy. Well, well thank you. That's very generous of you, Brandon, and I will file that in my uh, rain check file. <laughs> I will take it. Uh, Alan, uh, enjoy your day. Uh, I know no hockey, but uh, do your best to enjoy your Sunday, and uh, I hope we talk again soon. Thank you so oh, much for this time. We, we've got the Canucks at 7.55. Oh, there you go. I have, because um, I'm a big, we'll, we'll, we'll bookend it with hockey talk. So I'm a big hockey uh, attire uh, collector. So I have my Canucks, the old one from the, the 94 uh, Stanley Cup. I shouldn't say old one because they're old, old ones were gross. But the, the very famous uh, Pavel Bore uh, jersey. But then, awesome. since, then, since I'm an Islander fan, you'll appreciate this, when... Uh, Mark Messe left the Rangers, and I just wanted to stick it to my Ranger fan friends. I bought a Canucks Messier jersey. <laughs> well, the the last uh, Dogs game I went to, I actually broke out a shirt that I'd never worn to a game before just to, to see. And it's actually from the Mighty Ducks movie, the Eastland 
um, jersey that a friend of mine who was in the movie wore during the shooting of the movie. And I was really surprised that a lot of people knew where it came from. Of course. It's the Mighty Ducks. Quack, quack. Oh, you're, t- you're talking like America. I mean, especially my age group. Come on. I would love to. Uh, I wonder if Emilio Estevez is a Guns N' Roses fan. I would love to have him on the show. That's interesting. Uh, probably. Interesting. probably. Oh, who isn't? Who isn't? Um, well, some more than others. Just uh, just don't wear a uh, Thomas Placanic Toronto Maple Leaf sweater and we'll be good. I have a Canadian's jersey. <laughs> How about that? Oh, yeah. Here, that, we'll end here. Work. I have the red Canadian's jersey, and I'll let you go, Alan, uh, after this. I have two uh, Coyotes jerseys. I have, when they first came out, the black one that looks all like Aztec and shit, which is amazing. And then when they when they started introducing love, love that yeah it's, it's a beautiful jersey and then the same, another one uh, when the NHL started introducing the third alternate uh, jerseys when they had the green and it was like a weird looking coyote face on there but it was badass so yeah we, we have some yeah. sort of coyote connection there you go Keith Kuchuk Jeremy Rodnick I can say words and names yeah yes there you go so uh, Alan <laughs> thank you so much and I uh, hope we can uh, talk oh, again soon. Brandon, uh, thank you for your time and a pleasure meeting with you, and I hope to meet you in person one day. Absolutely. If you're ever in in New York, I would love to have you in studio. That would be uh, an amazing experience. Thank you so much, Alan. You're welcome, gentlemen. Good to to talk with you, Mitch, too, even though it was brief. Sorry, we kind of uh, (laughs) took up all the oxygen. And I got to get going to to an Udo show tonight, Udo Dirk Schneider. I got to get there. So Pleasure, gentlemen. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mitch. And thank you to you for listening to episode uh, 48, which I did not plan to be over two hours, but sometimes you got to take advantage of the situation. Uh, I also have a very uh, special treat for you, and this is actually courtesy of Alan. After the episode, after the outro, uh, the band Razor he was talking about, uh, he says it's probably uh, he wanted to give you a song that sounds most like old school GNR. So, a razor with It's a Motherfucker. I'm sure it'll be fun for the whole family. Uh, free music stream download uh, after the outro. Again, this has been and will continue to be the AFD Show. Please follow, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, all that fun stuff. Thank you. As far as the next episode is concerned, when will you see it? Well, in the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. You've been listening to the distorted minds of Appetite for Distortion. Follow the guys on Twitter at The AFD Show and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The AFD Show. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.